Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. Professor Alan Cottenden from University College London describes recent work to understand the technology for managing incontinence. Chairman, um, new chairman, um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, I am delighted to be here and have the honour of being your president. Um, I have known or know some of your past presidents, Sir George Godber, Sir Ludwig Gutmann, who was my doctor at Stoke Mandeville Hospital when I broke my back, not far from here. I broke my back uh, riding in a point-to-point at Rorton, and I was, had my life saved at Swindon Accident Hospital. And I was very fortunate because I was taken to Stoke Mandeville within 48 hours, something that isn't happening all the time nowadays because of shortage of beds. Um, Sir Ludwig um, was the pioneer of the Olympic Games um, and I think he would be very proud of the worldwide organisation that is now grown into. Um, I was one of the pioneer people and I took part in the first Paralympics in 1960. Um, I was on the Winston Churchill Fellowship Trust for a long time with Sir Roger Bannister. And I know Professor Lord Darcy, as he was our minister in the House of Lords. He has now resigned, and at the moment, we're without a minister. Uh, So we're asking lots of questions, and very difficult ones. Um, I congratulate the staff and the supporters for all that they do for By Me. It is so good to learn about the progress being achieved in projects which range from daily living, mobility, rehabilitation, and leisure to medical and surgical applications. BIME is an organization making a huge difference to people's lives and lifestyles. And in the unique charity, um, in its commitment to make available assistive devices for whoever will benefit, whether it is a case um, of just a few individuals or larger groups of people, adults and children. Some of the colourful designs for children are really splendid, but I think how important it is to be working with people with dementia. This is a growing concern as we are a growing ageing population. Last week, I went to a scientific exhibition of many devices for heart monitors, diabetes pumps, silver catheters, and many others, Um, and this was in Parliament. Um, But the concern was that the UK was below the Czech Republic in the take-up of some of these devices, which can make all the difference to somebody's life Um, there is a great deal to do and there is a great deal at this particular time for voluntary help. So all those people who are giving voluntary help to such organisations as yours must be congratulated and supported and encouraged. Um, I am um, very pleased um, to be able to introduce to you our speaker tonight. Such an important subject Um, uh, Professor Alan Coddenden and I would like to welcome his wife also who has come with him. Professor Coddenden is going to tell us about developments in continence technology. Um, He took a first degree in material science at Cambridge uh, followed by a PhD in the mechanical properties of mechanic tool materials. He then focused on medical physics and selected incontinence technology, which was seriously underdeveloped. He worked at Sussex University and then moved to UCL. He is a trustee of the Bladder and Bowel Foundation on the advisory board of the US Simon Foundation and many other projects and books. He will tell us about progress in continence technology and achieving a better quality of life 
for those affected. Um, incidentally, all tetraplegics and paraplegics are affected in this way, and I'm one of them. Um, uh, urinary incontinence um, is of such importance that we now have a parliamentary group. Um, perhaps you'll come and talk to it. Uh, and um, I hope uh, you will be able to answer questions at the end if people have them. So thank you very much indeed for coming. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Lady Masson, thank you so much for inviting me to give this uh, lecture. It's a, it's a delight to be here. Um, we were just chatting beforehand. I think we last met 30 years ago at the Disabled Living Foundation. And Lady Mazam looks pretty good after those 30 years. I didn't ask her how I appeared um, by comparison. I didn't have quite so many white hairs in the beard then, I think. I'm going to be talking to you then about this rather unattractive topic of incontinence. And it's a great field to be talking, uh, to be working in when you're asked at sherry parties like the one just now what you do. And it's guaranteed to make people either terribly serious or burst out laughing, in about equal numbers, really, depending on how they, how they see the world. Um, let me start by telling you just how common this problem is. The very first epidemiological study of any size to do with incontinence was actually done partly in Bristol, just up the road from here. A chap called Roger Fennelly was involved. Some of you will know him. And what they discovered, this was back in about 1988, was a prevalence like this. That actually incontinence, urinary incontinence, is incredibly common, far more common than anybody dreamed beforehand. Um, secondly, as you can see, that there's rather more blue than there is magenta. There are a lot more ladies around with an incontinence problem than men by some considerable factor. You'll also notice from the men that aside of the fact that there are more bedwetters among boys than girls that the, the incidence increases as we get older. And for women, there's this interesting bulge around the years of menopause that, uh, that gets in the way of that trend. It's a very, very common problem. Around 8% of, uh, of women in the general population, 6% of men have a degree of incontinence problem. Interestingly, if you multiply that up, by the, uh, the age structure of the country, and I last did this in 2005, because, of course, although the, the prevalence among the uh, uh, 85 pluses is very high, not all of us make it to 85. So if we factor that in, what we find is that, in fact, the big numbers are actually look mostly across these middle years for women, numerically. And you may have noticed, if you watch the TV after 9 o'clock at night, that there are a couple of three companies who are pushing hard, as it were, on uh, small disposable pads for ladies for light incontinence. Well, that's the market that they're, they're pitching at. If you're incontinent in that way then these are some of the things that may happen. The thing about incontinence is it doesn't kill people, but it can certainly rob you of your quality of life. And there's a raft of possibilities there. People get embarrassed, uh, fear being discovered. There's, uh, you may restrict your lifestyle. If the last time you visited your friend, you left a damp patch on the sofa, you may feel it's just safer not to visit, and so on. A whole raft of uh, issues. Family friction for example, is another one. It's also known that incontinence is second only to dementia as the precipitant cause for going into a nursing home. And something like three-quarters of people in UK nursing homes have an incontinence problem. So it's very, very common. There is much that can be done to cure or at least alleviate incontinence for many people, but there is a significant proportion for whom that's not possible, or at least not full cure. And the, uh, the mission of the group that I lead at uh, UCL is actually to see what we can do for the people who can't be fully cured. What can we do to uh, raise the quality of life for those people whose incontinence can't be uh, fully cured? And what I plan to do uh, this next while is to tell you about some of the things I've been involved with over the years. Um, incontinence technology comes in where uh, if you are intractably incontinent of urine, then probably you will need some kind of technology to help to contain 
the, the problem that you have. And this is my attempt at summarising in one slide the range of technology that's around to contain urine, or faeces for that matter, um, or to stop it from leaking in the first place. There, there are various occlusive devices up here, some of which look as if they've come out of a medieval torture chamber. Um, but there's, there's a fair amount of, of, of technology involved in, uh, in what we can do to help. Now, because of the time and because of my particular area that I've been involved with, I'm going to major in the absorbance area, in the PADS area. And PADS actually account for something like 60% of the NHS uh, bill for incontinence products. So they are the, the, the lion's share, if you will, of, the, of the, certainly the financial cost. And what I uh, plan to do is to show you how this slide works out in what we do. We're actually involved in, uh, first of all, doing a lot of clinical studies so that we can understand what the needs are of people who have an incontinence problem. That often leads us into realising there's some basic science that needs to be done to solve some problems. That often has to be unpinned by mathematical modelling. And that work frequently results in us coming back to clinical studies to try out the things that we've discovered. Sometimes there's some design and development of products to be done that arrive back in clinical studies. And then we make jolly sure that that's fed back into healthcare policy and provision. And also in there, we've been involved over the years with creating international and national standards. So in one sense, we're very focused. It's all incontinence. But in another sense, we're actually very, very broad because we bring to bear a very wide range of disciplines and different uh, stakeholders is the word we're supposed to use these days who are involved in incontinence in one way or another. So in one sense, we're very focused. In another, we're very broad. And I'm going to give you um, four examples of uh, some of the things we've been doing over the last years which show you how we populate this sort of philosophy of trying to have joined-up thinking from the very basic science through to the clinical reality of delivering benefit to incontinent people and their caregivers. So here's the first one. And in case you're, you're feeling the, the sniff of dinner coming, each of the four topics will be introduced by a slide that has a yellow background. So if you count to four on your fingers, you'll know how close you are to dinner. So here's the first challenge, which is there in lots of areas of, of, of uh, medical technology, but it's certainly there in incontinence. How do you make informed choices if you work for the health service with, a, with the uh, responsibility of providing products for people, how do you make informed choices that somehow can be defended against accusation of either spending too much money unnecessarily, on the one hand, or sacrificing quality of care to save money on the other? And this is the reality of what a lot of people uh, are caping with. Well, one of the ways of handling that is to generate international standards, standard test methods for measuring the efficacy of products to inform purchasing. And I've been involved in international standards work for, uh, I think, about 15 years. It's probably longer than that if I stop and think about it, but that will do for an estimate. So how did we go about doing this? There's a very large international study that we ran. It was rather bizarre some years ago, where we basically invited the world incontinence community. I don't really know what that word means, but it sounds sort of impressive, doesn't it? to get involved in creating this international standard. And we said we're looking for three kinds of volunteers here. Firstly, we want some companies to donate a lorry full of products. That's this end, donated products. And then we want a whole lot of hospitals and nursing homes to evaluate those products to the same protocol so that we can gather data on how well they perform. And then also, because there were a large number of companies, laboratories and so on, who thought they had wonderful test methods uh, that you could use to characterise these products, we said to them, if you think you've got a decent method, then we'd like to recruit you, we'll send you some products, you run your test method, and then what we'll do is we'll look for correlations between the laboratory and the clinical here, and if we find a test which gives us a good correlation, then that can become the basis for an international standard. Because the thing about running clinical trials is it's very time-consuming and expensive and so on. Laboratory tests are generally rather faster. 
but you have to be careful as to what the numbers may mean. And the way this worked was fascinating because I, I still remember standing, uh, uh, sitting around a table with about uh, 30 or 40 people talking about the absorbency of incontinence pads, which can get a bit surreal after the third day or so. And it's all going through bilingual translation as well because the French are there. And, and I can still remember a chap from a company who say, well, we've got this test method that we use for measuring the absorption capacity for, for, for pads. We do it like this. And it will go quiet and somebody will say, oh, that's interesting. Do those data correlate with user experience? And it will go quiet and you say, well, we don't know, but it's a very good test. <laughs> and then it will go quiet and somebody else would have his idea. So the point here was that we were not evaluating products. We were evaluating technical tests, which is rather different. And in fact, um, what we did was to recruit a whole lot of people from all around the world, uh, in North America, Europe, Australasia, and so on, uh, to be uh, one of these kinds of test centers. And we pulled the data uh, together from all of that, um, all of that work. And, it, and, and uh, clinically, this is what we did. We said, this was rather bizarre, really, um, we said to the, the caregivers, because these were heavily incontinent people, every time you change a pad, please can you put it in a plastic bag and weigh it? We know what it weighed when it was dry, so therefore we can work out how much urine there is in there. And please also, will you note whether that pad leaked a lot? Well, it's easy to tell when a pad's leaked a lot. Or not at all, that's easy. And there's a kind of an in-between, where it's kind of leaked a bit, but it's not a big disaster. And that enabled us to uh, invent this method for characterizing the leakage performance of pads. Now, this isn't nearly so scary as it might look to you. Let's just look at this line here, which is the probability of a pad leaking at all. So, and, and along the bottom, we've got uh, the urine weight here. And one means perfection, so you're guaranteed it won't leak. And zero means guaranteed disaster, it certainly will leak. So what you can see is that at the very low urine mass ends then we're close to one, so it's very unlikely to leak. And as we go to higher urine weights, then the success falls away. Because this is a statistical thing. A pad doesn't have a capacity like a cup, where I fill it up and I'm fine until the drop that's just more than the capacity, then it leaks. It doesn't work like that. You can just say that the capacity falls away, the performance falls away with increasing urine weight. And then we can do the same, where we say, well, what about if we allow a little bit of leakage? So what's the probability of it not leaking badly as opposed to at all? And we've got another curve here. So that means that if we had another pad that worked better, then these curves would be higher up. And in fact, a perfect pad would have a line at one all the way across. So guaranteed success, however much urine you put in there. So we've got a way of putting numbers on the leakage performance of the pad. Then we took all of these tests, and 13 centers ran 53 tests and measured 151 different parameters. So I can still remember this vast body of data. And to everybody's embarrassment, this was the best test. And what it involved was taking a pad, here it is, rather simplistically, and you dunk it upside down in a tray of saline and you leave it to soak. And then you take it out and you put it on a grid and you let it drip for five minutes. And then you weigh it. And you find out how much fluid was in there. And the answer is daftly large, you know, four or five litres or something. But, and this is the important thing, that number correlates extremely well with what happens in clinical practice. And this is a subsequent study, not the original one, where up here we've got the clinical performance of a pad uh, at 200 grams of urine, that's somewhere close to the average weight that goes into these pads. And along the bottom, we got the prediction from the laboratory test. And each of these is a different design of pads. So there's, a, oh, I think, 80 or something here. And if the tests were perfect, then all these data points would sit along a straight line running diagonally across my graph. And you can see it's not bad, is it? And the correlation coefficient for those who like these things is about 0.87. Pretty impressive for dunking the thing in a bucket of water. It was very interesting that uh, uh, the, the companies couldn't argue with the science, but they absolutely detested this outcome because this terribly sophisticated product that they're making, are you really saying that if you dunk this in a bucket of water, this is going to tell us 
80% of the story. And of course, this, this didn't kind of fit with an image of high tech. But interestingly, this became the basis on which all central NHS buying happens. Let me show you how that works, because the organisation, Passer as it's called, contacted us in 2001, said, we've got this problem. When we go out for national tender, we say to the companies, please would you tell us uh, your pad for moderate incontinence, or heavy incontinence, or light incontinence. And they said, we did something interesting this year. We sent all the pads to get Rothwell tested. That's that test I just showed you, where you dunk it in the... The, the fluid, and they said, look what happens. These pads that are for moderate incontinence, look, the lowest one has a capacity of 400, and the top one here is 2,000. And they're all tendering for the same subset. We're not comparing apples with apples. How do we handle this? And so what we suggested was that they invented something that uh, I laughingly called the Rothwell number. Um, have, have, you, have you ever bought a duvet or a, or a, uh, a sleeping bag? And it has something called a TOG number on it. Have you come across that? Have you any idea what the TOG number means? I've yet to find anybody who knows what the TOG number means, but everybody knows the bigger the number, the warmer the duvet. So you know whether you're comparing light with light. So here we are. Here is what they did. They said, OK, we're going to say we're going to have an I-9 pad, and that has a capacity between 1,000 grams and 1,250 grams. And an I-8 is going to have this. So they, they now do all of their tendering on the basis of this banding. And they tell me that it saves them millions of pounds a year. I'm still waiting for my 10%, but <laughs> that's what they tell me. So actually, this work in some pretty basic lab science, actually, has resulted in a policy which is rolled out across the health service and enables some more objective purchasing to be, to be done. But I have to say that in fairness, and, and a lot of companies absolutely hate this with a passion, and I understand that they're partially uh, uh, justified in that hatred, because one of the things, of course, is it's an incredibly crude test. It's just telling you how much absorbent material is in there. If there is anything very sophisticated in the design, that test won't see it. And so there is work under... under, uh, under being undertaken at the moment from an organisation that uses a mannequin. This has detachable male parts, by the way. And you pump fluid into a pad worn by this mannequin from a computer-controlled pump and see how much it absorbs uh, before it leaks. And the correlations are actually looking pretty good. We help them with this with regard to correlating the clinical reality. But it's a much more complex method takes a lot more training to run it repeatedly and so on and so forth. And the jury is still out at the moment as to whether the world wants the kind of simple and cheap and not bad or the rather better but more expensive and complex. So I think this will run a little more. But you get the idea that we need a basis for trying to make sure that people are, are provided with product that will actually do the job. And having international standards to do that will help. Okay, so this is the second yellow slide. Have you noticed? One of the things that happens to people who are incontinent is, and wear pads in particular is they commonly get skin problems. So dermatitis related to incontinence is very, very common. You see the sorts of uh, figures that I've got here. Therefore, we need to understand the interaction between wet materials and skin. Now, one thing that's happened um, in the last while uh, has been rather fascinating, and we used some technology that you would be familiar with to show this happening, was that over the, the last few years, companies have started to build these rather uh, sophisticated layered structures of materials that include the use of something called a superabsorbent polymer. Now, if we look at a pad, and I bought, uh, I bought one along with me. Here we are. Here's a incontinence pad, and if we break this open, there's some fluffy stuff in here, which is uh, fluffed wood pulp, and the most endearing quality of fluffed wood pulp is it's cheap. It doesn't have much else going for it. It absorbs, 
but if you squeeze it, all the fluid comes out. It's just like cotton wool. But what companies have been doing more recently is to build into there something called superabsorbent polymer. Now, at great risk to life and limb, because one really didn't ought to bring white powder onto a university campus, is I bought some along with me. Here's a, a glass. Well, that's far too much, I think. And uh, I've got some water here. And this is the stuff that they put into pads. And if I pour some water on, am I in a good place for you to see what's going on? Oh, thank you. Now, if we watch, I'll just kind of stir that up a bit. Oh, there you go. This is the reason why, I don't know if you've noticed, baby diapers have got thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner, and so have sanitary towels. And I think you can see <laughs> why. Isn't that remarkable? So for every gram, every five grams of this fluff wood pulp you take out, one gram of this will do. And, of course, it's nice and compact until it swells and does what you want it to do. And this company, if we could have the lights down again, reckoned that it was capturing all of the water in one layer in their pad. That's what it said on the sales literature. So we said to them, we'd like to check that out. And I've got a friend who's a professor of magnetic resonance imaging. And I, he probably would hate me for saying it, but an MRI machine is for mapping water, really. And here's, here's somebody in an MRI machine. This poor person has a brain tumour. Here it is. But what you're mapping, what gives the contrast here, is the protons in water molecules that are in different, slightly different chemical environments. And so I said to my MRI friend, please, sir, can I put my wet pad inside your MRI machine? And he very graciously said yes. And we set up an experiment that looked like this. Here are the layers of the pad. Here's the plastic backing. This is the base layer, which just has the fluffed wood pulp in it. This is the one with all the superabsorbent layer in. And this stuff here, an acquisition layer, is supposed to be very open structured and let the fluid through, but not hold on to anything, to keep the skin dry, you see. And these green dots here were micro-glass tubes filled with water which we knew would show up in MRI, so we can see where the lines are. And over here is the MRI image. And look, you can see it's absolutely right. Look, white is water. And look, most of the water is in the layer where this one, where they said it should be. So it actually does what it says on the tin, which is rather impressive. And we're actually just in process now of negotiating with some people to do some mathematical modelling of what's going on in these cores to see whether we can make them uh, work better. We shall see in the, in the time to come. Now, also related to skin, another important thing is skin friction. Now, you may be wondering why the person's arm is there, because by and large, arms aren't incontinent. And that's because the volar forearm is nice and smooth and hair-free and easier to get at. And quite interestingly, as I'll show you in a while, we're actually doing some work on excised skin, and we're actually doing that on breast skin from mastectomies. And I had a very interesting time when I went to the ethics committee, uh, who, were, who were very kindly towards us, but they said, look, we, we've got to ask you, incontinence, breast, what's, <laughs> what's this about? And I explained that we needed skin that was smooth and hair-free and a reasonable area. And this was, we, we, can, we have the agreement, actually, to get excised breast skin to do some experiments that I'll tell you about in a minute. So although I'm looking at arms and breasts, it, it is actually the, the groin that we're interested in, ultimately. But that's geometrically and hairily, if there's any such word, um, rather more difficult. So this was the situation we had. Somebody came to us saying, we've got this method where we take a piece of the material, this sort of teabaggy material that's on the top of the incontinence pad that goes next to the skin, we take a strip of that and we drag it over the arm. There's a weight on this end. There's a device the other end called a tensometer that pulls it at a constant rate and we measure the force that's required to do that. And they said we know that if we have a higher coefficient of friction in here, we have to pull harder, but we don't know how to extract something called the coefficient of friction, which is a number that characterizes friction between two surfaces. We don't know how to do that. So we took this method and we developed it to the point where it was, uh, 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 we could do it repeatably. 
And then we thought, well, we need to understand what's going on. We need to model this mathematically. Now, at the time, I had a son who was doing A-level maths and was on holiday. So I threw him this problem. And I said, well, model the arm as a rigid, solid cylinder and the material as inextensible. The engineers among you will recognise the tricks of the trade here to make an impossible problem a bit more uh, tenable. And uh, anyway, I gave him this problem, and I was rather pleased. Within two weeks, he gave me back the solution. And uh, we looked at it, and, and it was rather elegant. Here it is. So here is the, the model that he set up. And this was his equation for getting the coefficient of friction out of the forces in, in that setup there. And then one of the colleagues we were working with at the time said, well, hold on a minute. I've seen that problem before. That's the capstan problem. And he said, I bet that's been solved. And we went onto the internet and we found that a chap called Leonid Euler had solved it about 200 years previously. But I'm, I'm hoping that uh, he's, he's not turning in his grave and he's reassured by the fact that we've checked it for him. And he was indeed right. But what that meant was that we could extract the coefficient of friction on the basis of the assumptions I've just told you about from these measurements. But we needed to check that we were actually getting the right number. So we ran an, a, a project where we took a piece of this material and we dragged it horizontally across a piece of skin. It's a terribly messy experiment because, of course, as soon as it moves, the weights fall on the floor and roll under the bench and all that kind of thing. Uh, we wanted to get the coefficient of friction out of this measurement and out of this one and see whether they agreed, as they should, if this model was good. And uh, this is what happened. Here is the coefficient of friction from the straight pull that I showed you on the left and the curved pull on the right. And again, the, the black line is what should be perfection and the blue line is what we found. That's not bad, is it? But hold on a minute, we've assumed that the arm is a cylinder. Well, that's a terrible assumption, isn't it? We've assumed it's rigid so it doesn't deform. Well, that's pretty awful as well. And we've assumed that the material is inextensible. Well, actually, that's not a bad assumption, but the other two are miles out. So this really shouldn't work, which puts me in mind of Arthur C. Clarke, wonderful, wonderful quote I read from him the other day. He said, he said um, discovery is not usually punctuated by eureka, but rather by, that's funny. <laughs> I like that. That's, that's. And we looked at this and we thought, that, that shouldn't happen. It shouldn't be that good from the assumptions that we made. Now, by now, my son was a university mathematician, and I threw him the problem again on the, on the basis of getting some return on my investment for paying for his education, and said, try again, son, but this time make the arm elliptical. A bit closer. Well, he started to work away at it, and in fact, he, he phoned me up and he said, well, actually, I can do it for any shape you like, provided it's convex at all places. I said, fine. And he sent me this equation, and I've written it down. Here it is, this equation here. You don't need to understand it, really, but the R's in here relate to a radius from an origin, a point from which you measure things. And I said to him, where's the origin, then, in your calculation? He said, oh, you can put it where you want. So I said, well, suppose I put it and I explained to him a certain place where I knew the geometry would come out nice and easily. Can I put it there? Oh, yes, he said. So I did, and all of these terms here went to zero, and clunk out of the bottom drops exactly the equation that we got from assuming a cylinder, which explains why we get such good agreement, because your arm isn't bad approximation to being convex at all places around. And he's now, actually, he's doing a PhD with us now. And so the next thing he did, and I don't understand this slide at all. But what, he assures me, this is, this is the setup for a perfectly general solution for any curved surface. Um, and like mathematicians, they love setting these things up. And he said, of course, I can't solve it. <laughs> actually, he can solve it for certain situations which tell us useful things. And what that means is that we can understand how the coefficient of friction between a, a fabric and a material, like when you're wearing a pad, 
how we can calculate what the shear stresses are in the skin that cause the mechanical damage when it's wet. So many, many real situations. Now, when we started to use that method, we found something very interesting. Here's the coefficient of friction that we measured for a particular non-woven, that's what this tea bag material is called, and we took five subjects and we did three repeat measurements between, for the person's skin and this material when their skin was dry and we got these values and when the skin was wet and we got these values. So you can see why you run into trouble with wet skin. The coefficient of friction is about three times higher than for dry. But something else very interesting is, look, these are really very tight, repeatable values, but look at that person there. For some reason, they have a low coefficient of friction when the material is dry. You make their skin wet, and they have the highest. So the method is actually able to distinguish between different people's skin, not just different fabrics. Now, of course, a scientist in those situations will say, well, why? Why is it, then, that I put the fabric on this skin, and it works like this, and I put it on somebody else's skin, and it's different? If I can understand why... Maybe I can help the people that make this fabric to make some fabrics which are kinder to the skin, cause less damage. And that's what we're setting out to do. We're not there yet, but this is where we have got to. Uh, we've worked out a, a method here for looking at the interface where the fabric touches the skin. And we do that. Here's a piece of fabric, and here is our surface. So this is a surrogate skin. And this microscope, we focus it so that its focal plane, the bit that's in focus in the view, is exactly at that interface. So if any fibre is in focus, it's touching the skin. If it isn't in focus, then it's either above or below that plane. It's not touching the skin. And if we do that, here's what the fabric looks like um, under the microscope there. So these are all the fibres that are in there. And you can't see, I'm quite sure, which of those are in focus or not. But if somebody looks up close and does it by hand, then those are the bits of the fibre that were actually in touch with the skin. And if you look at it, the proportion then of this area which is actually touching the skin is absolutely tiny. It's much less than 1% of the nominal area. It's as if the fabric is holding you on kind of fingertips. So whatever's going on between the fabric and the skin, it's happening in these tiny, tiny little strips of footprint. And we think we know what's going on. And we're just in process of building some more mathematical models to confirm that. And if we're successful, we will be able to go to the companies that make these sort of fabrics and say, here are some ideas for making fabrics in such a way that they're kinder to the skin. And therefore, people who have to wear incontinence pads will get less less sore skin. So again, there's an example of starting with a clinical problem, taking it back into measuring clinical things in the laboratory, back to real uh, experimental science, mathematical modelling, and then we're on our way back to the clinical coalface to make a difference at the far end. That's, that's the focus. That's what we're trying to do. Okay. This is the final section that I want to tell you about. Um, about 20 years ago, uh, three things happened in quick succession which were, were interesting. One was there was a nurse that I worked with then called Christine Norton. I think, Sue, you probably know, know Chris Norton. I still work with her, in fact. But she passed my office on the way back from a clinic where she'd been helping incontinent people, and she was muttering, why don't people come up with products that don't do serious damage to the dignity of people who have to wear them? And she was showing me some of the things that were there. And that really stuck in my mind. And that week I went home, and at the time we had two children who were uh, in baby diapers. They were kind of the last ones to be using textile ones rather than disposables of, of, of today. And I can still remember Margaret, my wife, changing the nappy of one of them. I don't remember who it was. And, and she you know, handed out this sodden nappy in a pair of plastic pants around the corner of the door and said, could you deal with this, please? And I remember holding it, and it weighed a tonne. And I said, did this leak? And, of course, she wasn't particularly interested in whether it leaked or not. She had a screaming child on her lap and so on. Anyway, I got out of her that it hadn't leaked. Oh, that's amazing. And then, at the same, about the same time, I went to a conference 
And there was a, a veritable uh, uh, epidemic of surgeons who were trying to prove that they were improving ladies' incontinence by weighing their wet, their, their wet pads before the operation and then six months after the operation. It turned out it was a disaster as a method for doing that. But what it did show was that most women, most of the time, never leak more than about 10 or 15 millilitres of urine. Now, that sounds like not very much, but if you throw it on the floor, it goes a long way. I thought, I wonder how much terry-toweling nappy you need to hold 15 millilitres of urine. So I stole one of the nappies from home. I'm not sure if I told you this, but I stole one of the nappies from home. And I cut it up, and I found that actually about three layers of sanitary towel-size piece of material would do it. And then I, I popped along to, um, to Oxford Street, and I went into all the women's lingerie departments... And I finally found what I wanted in, in, uh, um, in John Lewis's, where they had ladies' underwear that was particularly wide in the crotch, which is what I was looking for. And I was rummaging through, and, I, I, and I'd sized up the ladies I worked with, you know, what sizes they were, because they were going to be the guinea pigs. And, and I bought them, I thought it was very generous of me, I bought them three pairs each. And I went to the checkout lady, and I can still remember her looking at me. Well, in fact, she didn't look at me. I was looking down like this. And, and then I said something rather foolish. I said, please, can I have a receipt there for research, you see? And immediately I said that. I thought, but uh, strangely, that, that then made it okay. She was happy to look me in the eye after that. So I went back, and we had this happy period where we, we sewed this panel of material into the crotch of these pants. And I'm sure she won't mind me telling you, Amanda Fader, a nurse I've worked with for many years, we had this routine because she had, as we used to joke, she had an O-level in sewing. <laughs> and what we did is we commandeered a sewing machine from the laundry repair department. And what the first thing we did was we make a, made her a big cup of tea. You see where this is going, can't you? And then we would come up with our latest design. And by then, her cup of tea was just coming through nicely. And she would disappear off to the ladies and she would meet her about the right quantity of urine into it, and then come back and report on her experiences. And then we would try again the next day, and so on. And at the end of that, we came up with something that worked, and they called them Kylie pants. This was before Kylie Minogue was quite as famous. I don't know whether she named herself after our pants. I haven't asked her, but this is what they look like. And the point is, they look kind of normal. You know, you hang them up on the backyard washing line, and they look pretty much the same as any other sort of underwear. Is, is the whole idea. So we've, we've tried to hit the discretion thing. But, and, and they, they are, there are now, oh, I don't know, 15 or 20 lookalikes that you can buy around the country. We weren't actually quite first to the market. Somebody else was. It's funny how an idea kind of permeates and different people come up with it at the same time. But we were, we were pretty close in there. But what we found in some clinical studies that we did is that, uh, and I bought some of these Kylie pants with me, actually. Some here. There we are. I don't know if these are your size, but you might like to have a... Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's the kind of thing that they look like. They have an absorbent panel built into them. But what we found was that, sadly, um, if we asked women to test these and a sort of a disposable sanitary towel-shaped sort of disposable pad, then this is how they compared. Do you remember the curves I showed you before, where the higher the curve, the better the leakage performance of the pad? That purple line is the disposable pad, and here is these washable pads. So, aesthetically wonderful, but they're actually not performing anything like as well as the disposable pad. So, what we did was we uh, did a study where we, we took the pants that had been tested clinically so we could find out how they performed, and then we built a surrogate woman. This is a woman in all her essentials. So, what we have here is a curved piece of transparent plastic, and here is a pad sitting on there, so it's taking roughly the kind of geometry that a pad would when you're wearing it. We pumped fluid into it, and we had video cameras above and below, and we watched what happened. And what we found was that there were a number of leakage mechanisms. For example, some of the products, the fluid had trouble getting in, so it just leaked off the sides. Others, it would go in, and it would run immediately and rivel it to the bottom, the lowest point, and just leak out the side. So we found a number of mechanisms, and we correlated what we saw with the reports of the women in the clinical testing. 
I wouldn't go so far as to say we got tight correlation, but we could understand some of what was going on. And that meant that we could then, and this view here, by the way, is, is the view from one of those cameras underneath. I'm sorry, the, 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 the fluid has magically changed from blue to red, from one picture to the other. Slides for different uh, uh, occasions. But the, the, the dye is just there to make it visible, of course. And what we then wanted to do was to say, now, how do we go about making this fabric, this material, work better? This is what it looks like. This is a scanning electron micrograph of the sort of fabric, absorbent fabric. These smooth fibres are polyester. These ones here that look like blades of grass are cellulose, viscose, viscose rayon. They're hydrophilic. These are hydroindifferent. So when the fluid goes in, if there were only viscose fibres, the whole thing would collapse. But the polyester fibres hold it open because the fluid's actually held in the space between the fibres. If you look at a cross-section... It's about 92% void volume fraction. It's mostly fresh air there. And the fluid is held between the fibres. So, how do we do something about this? Well, at this point, somebody suggested to me that I should go find a fluid mechanics expert. And the inspiration was in a water well, where I suddenly realised that people who do uh, groundwater modelling... I've got the solution to my problem. Now, let's think about this. If you pull water out of a well, then the water that's underground redistributes to replenish what you've just pulled out. Now, let's just think about my problem. My problem is the fluid goes in at one place, and I want to know where it goes. So, this is my problem with the video run backwards. And when I started to talk with this fluid mechanics expert, he told me that this had all been solved in 1932 by a bloke called Richards, who used something called Darcy's Law to relate the uh, absorption properties of a fabric for pulling fluid to the permeability, which is how easily the fluid flows through it. And the analogy, uh, this is quite a useful analogy, I think you perhaps remember from school, something called Ohm's Law, where you take a wire and you apply a voltage difference across it, and that causes a current to flow. And if you really remember your science lessons, you remember that the current is equal to the voltage difference multiplied by the conductivity, which is the reciprocal of the resistance. You remember that, I suspect. Well, Darcy's law is the same for fluids, but now you've got a pressure difference instead of a voltage. You've got a flow rate, but now it's fluid rather than electrons. And the equivalent of conductivity is permeability. How easily will fluid flow through it? So if we measure these relationships, and we can in the laboratory, I don't have time to show you how, but we can, then we can come up with a mathematical model. And what I have here is just a video clip or a, from the model. This is the, this is the curved piece of fabric I told you about. And we're going to apply the fluid about where it would be applied if a, if a lady was voiding into it. And this is, what, this is what you get. So white is completely sodden, yellow is a bit damper, orange is a bit damper, and red is only just damp. So you can see that this is the prediction for how the saturation, how wet the fabric is, varies with position in this piece of fabric when it's on a curve and the fluid is introduced in a particular way. Then what we did was to say, now let's take a bird's eye view of this then. We're going to look from above and I'm going to compare that with what you actually see if you run the real experiment. And that's what we have in the next picture. So at the top is going to be the same as I've just shown you, but now we're going to be bird's eye view. And at the bottom, this is, this is a real video sequence of applying fluid to the piece of fabric and then taking a picture of where it goes. So these two should agree rather well if uh, we're successful. And I think, as you can see, that's not bad, is it? Even to the extent of, look, you can see the shape of this here. It's a pretty good match. Now, what does that mean? That means that we can take some fabric, we can measure some things in the laboratory, and we can predict how a pad made out of that material would perform in real life. Better than that, we can even take a piece of material that nobody's invented yet and ascribe some properties to it that we would like to have and see what would happen, 
and then go to the guys that make the fabrics and say, if you can make us something like this, there's a market for it. And that's what we're in process of trying to do right now. Uh, it's not quite as neat as I may have uh, implied in my last sentence. I think jobbing scientists among you will know. But what we've done is this. We've taken our clinical data, our mathematical models, our lab data, and we've been able to write a design specification. So what do we need this thing to do in engineering terms? And that's enabling us to develop some fabrics uh, and through into product development and with input from companies that make fibres, companies that make fabrics, and a final manufacturer who's going to make the product at the end. And we have, uh, I can't show you a picture of what it really looks like because I'm not allowed to, of course, but uh, imagine it's sitting here. We have products out for clini on, on clinical evaluation at the moment. And we have the tools to establish uh, objectively whether we've improved matters or not. And so my hope is that Clinically, finding here's a product that works well, but the leakage performance is poor, that takes us back into lab testing, mathematical modelling, and then out again back to the, to the real world, the clinical coalface, to produce things that work better for people. So that's my four topics that show you how we inhabit this sort of territory of trying to link up all the, all the bits to the incontinence puzzle picture to make things work better. But finally, one of the things that happens if you uh, work in a field like I do is that your offspring um, send you birthday cards, like this one. <coughs> if you can read it at the back, it's one bat saying to another, do you know what I fear most about old age? No, what? Incontinence. As they hang upside down from their tree. Uh, so there we are. So I thank you very much for listening to me. Um, I hope I've given you an idea of what it's possible to do, what we're trying to do, to actually have an impact on the quality of life of this large number of people who are not being killed by this disorder, but whose quality of life is sadly uh, damaged by it. And my conviction is that we owe these people at least as much energy for dealing with the intractable problem as we're prepared to put into trying to solve it and not succeeding. Thank you very much.